0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley.
1: Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 61 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Paul Krugman. He's a New York Times columnist and Nobel Prize-winning economist, and also the author of several books, including The Conscience of a Liberal and End This Depression Now. He's also, as you'll hear, a hardcore science fiction fan.
2: Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Sarah Brand joins us to discuss economics and corporations in fantasy and science fiction.
1: All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Paul Krugman. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Okay, so you've said that you recently agreed to write a new introduction for Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. So what will you be talking about in your introduction?
0: So the story, the, the background story is I read Foundation back when I was in high school, when I was a teenager, and thought about those psychohistorians who saved galactic civilization through their understanding of the laws of society and said, I want to be one of those guys. And uh, economics was as close as I could get. Those are pretty unique novels. They really are structured nothing like even even the great bulk of science fiction because they are about how social science uh, can be used to, to save humanity.
2: Uh, so in recent years, you seem to have a very good track record of, uh, of predicting what's going to happen. Do you ever feel like in some way you've achieved your own dream of becoming a psychohistorian?
0: Uh, well, no. Uh, I mean, a mm-hmm. little bit's fine, uh, but two things. One is it's a pretty limited domain. I don't think I've had any great success in predicting politics or social change, uh, nor have I really tried. In economics, we do have some, you know, we don't have quite exactly have the laws of psychohistory, but we do have some pretty good guidelines. Um, The other thing, of course, in the foundation, Harry Seldon is able to put together his uh, his long-term plan and actually nudge history in the direction that he wants it to go, and so far, I'm feeling not like Harry Seldon, but like Cassandra. I keep on predicting bad things, no one will believe me, and then they happen.
1: Is science fiction, uh, is that something that a lot of economists are into, or are you kind of alone in that?
0: Um, no, I think it's fairly common. Um, and Not everyone, obviously, but uh, some of the social scientists in general. I, I have friends, political scientists, uh, sociologists, who all share uh, an interest, at least in certain kinds of science fiction. It's speculative. We're thinking about what what society could be like. Never mind the gadgets, although they they create the alternative worlds, but a lot of it is thinking about society, and here you are.
2: Uh, so you also mentioned uh, that you recently reread Frank Herbert's Dune. Uh, what was it like going back and rereading books like Dune and Foundation? Are, are they any different
0: than uh, what you remember? Yeah, I think I'd have, first of all, I think i have more appreciation for the craft of writing. When you're when you're 14 or 15 and you're reading things like this, you you you're enjoying it. But I, I think there's an extra depth that that comes from having tried to be a writer, even if you're a writer of at least allegedly nonfiction. Things were very different. When I I read Dune, I thought it was great fun. When I reread it, you know, recently, it was wow. There's a guy who really had a vision. This is this is not just uh, an interesting novel. This is somebody who Created a universe for himself that he really really cared about and and that shines through in a way that probably did when I was you know whatever fourteen or fifteen when I read it, but I've had a deeper appreciation and rereading foundation uh, again there's there's a lot more craftsmanship in those books that uh, than you might think I mean it was a very young Isaac Asimov and you know he, he wasn 't tolstoy but there's actually a lot more uh, in the way of creating a a, a form of, of storytelling that now I think I can appreciate in a way I didn't when I first read it.
2: Uh, so back in 2009, you appeared as a guest at the World Science Fiction Convention in Montreal. Uh, was that your first science fiction convention?
0: Yeah, it was. And I really went because I thought it would be fun as it was to to talk with Charlie Strauss. That was a really interesting experience. And uh, I may do it again if is scheduled schedules mesh science fiction uh world a lot of people doing you know seriously imaginative thinking, and uh my usual world is one where I like to hope that my friends and the people whose work I admire are are adventurous thinkers, but we do tend to stick pretty close to the ground on a a restricted set of issues and it's, it's great to, to get to talk to people. I mean, Charlie, of course, more more than basically almost anybody on, on the planet, but people who are really willing to think seriously outside uh, any box that you can imagine.
2: So, so how did you end up doing that? Did you, you just saw that Charlie Strauss was going to be there and, and you got in touch with them or did they reach out to you or?
0: They reached out to me because I've written about him. I've written his stuff. I, so I, I'm actually somewhat involved with, uh, they, the guys at Crooked Timber, which is an interesting blog that's a mixture of economists and political scientists and and philosophers, and actually many of them are science fiction fans, and they they do book symposia, and uh, some of them knew me and knew that I was a Charlie Strauss fan, so I weighed in. They had a symposium on, on Charlie Strauss, and I think things, things keyed off from there. So how did you become
1: a Charles Strauss fan?
0: I think I probably was just browsing in a bookstore. As I've often said, it, you, can, you can shop online and find whatever you're looking for, but bookstores are where you find what you weren't looking for. I think I actually read, I think I stumbled across the, the family trade, uh, and then, but then discovered that there's much, much more.
1: Yeah, I saw you described those books as economic fiction worth reading. Uh, what, what is it about the economics in that, those books that you thought was interesting?
0: So, if your listeners know, the family trade uh, novels involve some people who, for reasons, are not entirely clear, are able to step between alternative histories and uh, and move back and forth and the world they come from is actually one where uh, basically civilization has not done too well, where north america is is a collection of medieval kingdoms and uh, and and pretty backwards. And they, of course, have access to 21st century America, so they can bring back this technology and, and catapult their society into the modern world. But they don't. It's actually a very the society is still backwards, with just an elite that that is that has luxuries that they can import from from our universe, um, but leaves the both both the poverty and the oppressiveness of their society largely unchanged. Which is what really happens, as I said, in, my, in, the, in the stuff I wrote for the Crooked Timber uh, seminar. And, and Charlie actually makes the, makes the, uh, the I mean, Saudi royals can go and get their education in, in the United States or in England and bring their Western luxuries. But when all is said and done, they are still feudal overlords of a feudal society. And it's a lot harder to change a society than you might think. So it, the stories are, uh, are, are very much about how, um, just knowing that there's a technology, knowing that an economy can be run more productively doesn't actually necessarily bring you into the modern world.
1: Those books, actually, they have more of a fantasy flavor than science fiction. Do you read a lot of fantasy as well?
0: There's a genre of fantasy, that I am sometimes a sucker for, which is the sort of novels of prophecy, where there's a destiny, and little by little it it unfolds, and there are revelations and prophecies and, and things uh, gradually fall into place, and so, something like the the Robert Jordan uh, the Wheel of Time novels, which I'm a sucker for. I think mainly because life is at, not anything like that. Sometimes I need an escape from what life is really like, which is one damn thing after another. And the great thing about the Foundation novels is he manages to have, in many ways, the structure of a sort of a cycle of prophecy novels, except that the prophecies are not. Mystical, but because Harry Selton, and then the laws of psychohistory tell you what's going to happen next.
1: I've noticed that in your public statements, you often make science fiction references. Uh, you, you, for example, you've said that an alien attack would end the recession in eighteen months, and you recently said that Fer- Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke has been assimilated by the Borg. What kind of reactions do you get to those sorts of?
0: Well, it's funny. I, I mean, it, you know, we live in a culture that science fiction has gone. When I was a teenager, again, it was very marginal nobody knew and serious people didn't uh, refer to it, but no, it's been, it's made a lot of inroads into our culture and and assimilated by the board means, you know, a lot of us understand that that's a very quick, very powerful metaphor for takeover by a set of institutional norms that, that you really shouldn't be taken over by. Now, there are problems. It turns out that I think lots and lots of people know what that means, but Lots and lots of people did not, as it turned out, include all of the editors of the New York Times <laughs> magazine. So I had to include some sentences explaining what that was about. That that felt a little funny, but I guess not everybody has quite the same cultural tastes I do. The alien attack thing, um it's certainly something, you know, we've how how many movies? Uh I think you know there've probably have been 700 movies like that half of them starring Will <laughs> Smith and the uh um and to give you a notion of you know get us to spend on something that's that's a, a story people can understand. Uh, so back in
2: 1978 you wrote an economics paper called uh, the theory of interstellar trade. Uh, can you tell us what that was about?
0: Yeah, so at first you have to understand I was an assistant professor at that point which actually in retrospect of course is a wonderful thing it's it's a nice job and The worst that can happen is that you end up at the number 20 ranked school by the time you get tenure instead of uh, the the number one. But it feels at the time, you're know, you in your 20s and and it seems like there's a steep climb and you're having trouble getting anybody to pay attention. So out of frustration, I uh, blew off some steam by writing a little piece on interstellar trade. The joke uh, was, uh, how do you handle, since time time of shipment is a big factor even actually in real international trade. time of shipment much longer in interstellar trade. How much time actually do you spend in shipment, considering that we've got the theory of relativity, which says that it depends on the observer, so, you know, playing with that. And, I, of course, just because I was blowing off steam, I actually did the economics right. So, as I said in the introduction, this was a, a serious treatment of a ridiculous subject, which is the opposite of what we usually do in economics. There is a joke page, in, in, or there used to be, in the Journal of Political Economy, I sent it to them, and they didn't get it at all. <laughs> so I just sat on sure. it, and then, but it circulated, uh, you know, in, in science dot for several decades. And and in 2008, finally, uh, some people said, "Hey, can we publish this thing?" So 30 years after it, it actually got to, into print in the journal of the Economic Inquiry. It ended up saying that actually, it doesn't matter what how much time elapses on the spaceship. It's the it's the it's the time if uh, that elapses in the in the frame of reference of the, of the people doing the investing that matters, <laughs> which is, of course, obvious if you think about it for a second. But I was able to have some fun. Uh, and among other things, put in a uh, diagram of Minkowski space-time, which has an imaginary uh, time axis, which was a blank page, because, after all, it's just imaginary. So, it, you know, I was having some fun.
1: Uh, so in the movie Star Trek First Contact, a character asks Captain Picard how much it costs to build the Enterprise, and he replies the economics of the future are somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. Uh, What do you think about that?
0: I I will say, with all my science fiction stuff, that economics, is not that things never change, but they change much more slowly. The underlying principles change much more slowly than people imagine. You can read John Maynard Keynes or Irving Fisher from the 1930s and and except for a few archaic turns of phrase, it looks like they're describing what's happening right now. Uh, uh my friend and actually fellow science fiction fan Brad DeLong at Berkeley actually says that Walter Badgett's book from the eighteen seventies about financial crises uh reads better than most of the articles you'll see in the popular press these days. I mean it's true that we are not the you know, the laws of economics are really quite different for the twenty first century than they were in the fifteenth century. Because we didn't really have, uh, uh, a lot of the features of, of a market economy then. And maybe by the 24th century it'll be different again, but, uh, I'm not so sure about that, that optimistic view of Captain Picard. One thing that we see, I think we see is that greed has a way of breaking through no matter what we do on other fronts.
1: Well, I, I think that's interesting because I think, I think most people would look at what Captain Picard says there and, and say it could never happen because of human nature, because people are too greedy. But it makes me wonder if we were able to genetically engineer people to be more altruistic, would that kind of thing work or are there still benefits to having a, a, cu- a currency?
0: A market economy does have some desirable features, even this, you know, even leave aside the question of greed and all of that, It, in a way it, be, it behaves like a computer if you're going to make a decision between doing this and doing that and there are resources and and how do I I evaluate those trade-offs? And the answer is that market prices make it easy. It's just one number. How much does this cost versus how much does that cost? And it's not perfect, but it's actually, much of the time, it's not a bad way of assessing what the actual trade-offs for society as a whole are. So you can represent an idealized market economy as the solution to a to an optimization problem and out of that optimization problem, you know, the Lagrangians are going to tell you what, uh, they they look an awful lot like market prices. I I think we're probably going to have to have something like a market um, as far as the eye can see, although actually by the 24th century, maybe since the artificial intelligence will probably be doing everything, I don't know how they'll do it, but uh, we don't need to know because they'll do it.
2: Uh, so you've mentioned that you're a fan of uh, e m Banks. Uh, what do you think about this sort of post-scarcity economy depicted in his, in his culture series?
0: Well, that's again, that's uh, that's what you'd love to see. And at some level, maybe, eventually, uh, we can get there. We actually do know that, that money, that wealth, uh, ceases mattering very much at the margin as people get sufficiently rich. It really is true that beyond a certain point, Not that that doesn't matter at all, but that wealth doesn't make very much difference to people's welfare and that other things matter very much more. Uh, So you'd like to imagine that we could eventually get to a point where we really are post-scarcity. But it's a hard road. So John Maynard Keynes uh, wrote uh, an optimistic essay once called Economic Prospects for Our Grandchildren in the 30s where, where he talked about Once the world was, uh, four times or eight times as rich as, as it was when he was writing, at that point we would no longer be concerned about material things and we could get past all of this, this, uh, striving and greed. And actually we are about as much richer now as we were supposed to be according to his projection. And somehow the striving and the greed is still with us. So I guess it's a, it's a further away goal than, than we'd like to, like to imagine. It was a very early Heinlein novel that I ran across once in the uh, in the library at, at Yale University, which was written in the 40s, which was a Keynesian novel. Where the whole problem was that people wouldn't spend enough, and so everything about society was designed to, to keep the spending going, and uh, I forgot the name of it. It was actually a pretty bad novel, but uh, it was interesting to see him playing with that idea.
2: Okay, uh so there's a company called uh Planetary Resources that's planning to do to do uh real life asteroid mining. Uh what do you think about that business model?
0: First I saw about it is I thought aha. And so the evil villain hijacks whatever the system is that they use to move the asteroids into mining position and aims one at Earth in order, you know, haven't haven't we seen that movie many times, <laughs> right? Uh it's it's one of those things. I mean, it's just like surely we've seen enough enough uh, dystopian uh movies like that that I probably wouldn't go there just on that basis. Uh,
2: Yeah, so, you know, speaking of dystopias, uh, dystopian novels are really popular right now. Um, If you had to imagine a likely scenario for how the U.S. could turn into a completely dystopian society, uh, what would it be?
0: It's not that hard. I mean, in some ways, when I'm having a bad day, I try to think, you know, what what are the possible routes by which we don't turn into a dystopian Hmm. society? I mean, we've got the environmental threat, which is... uh, try not to think about too often because I don't know what to do given the political environment, but that's huge hanging over us. We are, you know, we are economically failing to deal with this crisis we've got, and, and there's real echoes of the 1930s in, in a lot of what's going on politically, mostly in Europe, but there's some of it here. Uh, nobody knows, but these, you know, information technology has been so far, by and large, a force for liberation, but uh, not too hard to see how it could turn into a force for the opposite.
1: See, in your book, uh, The Conscience of a Liberal, you make the point that a middle class society was kind of the result of government policy during the New Deal. And that just makes me wonder, was that just a bizarre accident that the biggest war in the history of the world happened to coincide with the most liberal president in the country's history, creating this middle class society, and that that's just going to be a historical ac- accident. And so projecting into the future, things are just going to go back to normal, which is wealthy aristocrats and starving peasants.
0: Well, I don't think that's, it wasn't totally an accident because the truth is that the same developments took place in a number of places. You know, Britain did the same kind of transformation that we did, actually more, more thoroughgoing than ours even, uh, over the same period. And a lot of the rest was at least partially because we, we as the, as the victors in the war helped to, to spur the reforms. But I think there was, uh, that wasn't just an accident. We, we were certainly lucky in FDR but uh, there was probably, it was a pretty likely outcome. But, you know, looking forwards, it's quite possible that the long-run state, that the natural state, except for special episodes, is one of, of extreme inequality. One of the more fun things I wrote back in uh, 1996, before I was a regular writer for the Times, but I was asked to write for the Times Magazine, and we were supposed, to, that was the 100th anniversary of the Times Magazine. And people were supposed to write essays that were written as if looking backwards from the year 2096. It's funny because very few of the writers were actually willing to do it. They were too serious. But I, I was. And I wrote of a society where basically not just uh, middle class was gone, but education was devalued. Uh, and wealth came largely just from, again, from owning resources. Back to the old days of, of, uh, of uh, a resource-based uh, aristocracy. We still think of that Ozzie and Harriet society, whatever you want to call it, that pretty decent society with you know, obvious problems, but pretty decent in terms of middle class that we had for a generation after World War II as being somehow the natural end state of modern, modern technology, modern development. And I guess the balance of it, and says, no, that's actually not how it works.
1: Okay, so there's been a lot of discussion lately among economists about whether it makes sense to build a Death Star. Quote, this debate picked up this year after some Lehigh University students estimated that just the steel for a Death Star would cost $852 quadrillion, or 13,000 times the current GDP of the Earth. Do you think that a battle station is worth that kind of investment, especially considering that the ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the force?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think that's probably right. And also, in general, you have to think that the uh, basic trend in, in military technology, as with everything else, has been towards small and deadly. I think more likely that we're going to have microscopic uh, drones that, that can kill everybody. So Death Star is a very, very antiquated vision of, of what evil will look like. Evil, evil will come in, in stylish, uh, stylish Steve Jobs-inspired designs.
1: So there, there was a Newsweek profile of you that quotes your mom as saying, quote, he was so shy as a child that I'm shocked at the way he turned out. Uh, so how did you go from being a shy, nerdy kid to being the kind of guy who goes around arguing with powerful people on television?
0: Oh, but see, that's really easy. That's impersonal. It's an odd thing. Put me in a one-on-one with, uh, with somebody and, and I'm just me and probably still the same as I always was. And that's also practice, right? You, first time I wrote columns, which was many years ago, I was actually a really stiff writer. had to learn how to do that better. First time I was on TV, I was awful.
1: See, so you had a recent blog post in which you compared your number of Twitter followers to people like Lady Gaga, Miley Cyrus, and Sarah Palin. What effect does that kind of social media have on your role as a newspaper columnist?
0: I actually don't, uh, I don't tweet. I have a kind of bot that tweets when I put up a blog post. Blogs turn out to be my sort of thing, but 140-character droplets not. It's only when there's something that's really breaking, when I really want to know what's happening, I'll read something news Twitter feed, but aside from that, I don't. So I'm not much into the social media thing. What it does mean is that I've got an audience, and it, what's happened is that the blogosphere has turned into a really effective means of having rapid-fire, real-time intellectual discussion, and I guess the social media helps to bring that together because people are more aware of what's happening in an even shorter period of time. But I'm not, I don't do social media directly myself because I'd be swamped.
1: Does that give you more independence? You think, because even if the New York Times were to fire you, you would still have this online
0: audience. Well, I don't, that's not what I think of much, but I think the Times is aware of the online audience, which makes them, you know, this is the kind of thing that they want to see happening, and and uh, they're even friendlier <laughs> than they would be otherwise. But you know, we're, we're things are happy with me in the Times right now because I sell papers, and I actually sell, and I sell. Uh, uh, digital subscriptions too, and uh, you know, then the Times is the Times Paywall thing is going pretty well, so we're all happy.
1: Do you have any ideas about how punditry might develop into the future uh, with all this electronic stuff?
0: It's interesting. It does mean that you don't have to have the imprimatur of a, you know, of, a of a major media organization, and I'm not sure exactly how many media, major media organizations are going to. Survive in the long run, I think the Times is doing pretty well at this, but it's it's a long it's a tough haul, so it does mean that anybody who is smart uh, and and writes well and can and you know able to react can get into this. I think we thought for a while that it was going to be very democratizing, and it turns out not to be it turns out that uh, that because people have limited attention have to make priorities, you end up with what is a very hierarchical system in which a few people really do uh, garner the great bulk of the attention in any particular area of discussion. Uh, so I'm not sure whether it's, it may not even at some level be be even more uh, uh, oligarchic in a peculiar sort of way than the old system. But it certainly means that there's more variety of the ways in which somebody can come to have an influential role in, in shaping discussion. By the way, that's... And this uh, this... Science fiction prefigured that. If you read Ender's game, his uh, brother and sister actually end up shaping planetary debate through their online aliases and the the debates they have with each other under assumed uh, assumed names. So all of this was prefigured. That's why science fiction is good for your ability to think about possibilities.
2: Uh, So your new book is called uh, End This Oppression Now. Uh, You want to go ahead and tell us a little bit what, what that's about?
0: Yeah, so it's ended this depression now with an exclamation point. Because, look, we're, we're suffering the greatest economic disaster since the 1930s. Uh, enormous human cost. Never mind the dollars. It's, uh, we've got you know, 13 million people unemployed, another probably 12 million or so that are involuntarily underemployed, 4 million people who've been out of work for more than a year. This is a, a huge catastrophe, and it doesn't have to be happening basic economics of how to solve this are very clear and have been confirmed by recent events. They're quite straightforward policies that could bring us out of this very fast but we're not doing it and we're not doing it partly because no one is making that case clearly, effectively and uh, I've been trying in the column and in the blog but those short form arguments have their limits. If I make some uh, point uh, in a column or in a blog post. People will say, well, but what about this and what about that? And the answer is, actually, I've answered those on a previous occasion, but, you know, it's just a series of, of memos. So the book takes all of that, puts it together, the argument about why this doesn't have to be happening, why the objections to the things that could get us out, which is first and foremost government spending temporarily, but we need the government spending now, uh some change in in monetary policy uh and so, some some uh, um uh, some work on on debt relief uh that puts all that together in one place with some new material also but presenting that long-form argument there's still a place for books that make a, a long-form argument and attempt to move the discussion get us to actually finally after trying all the alternatives do the right thing
1: Okay, and so finally, if people want to keep up with you and other economists online, which uh, websites and blogs should they be following?
0: So I read the you know, New York Times, Financial Times, and I read, I, I look at the Financial Times as a blog, FT Alphaville, which is just for market stuff. But then the next stop is a blog called Economist's View, which is Mark Toma at the University of Oregon. It's a personal blog, but he actually has lots of, he gathers material, he really Produces what amounts to a daily, uh, economics magazine, uh, with links to much of the stuff that's going on out there in the discussion. Brad DeLong at Berkeley has a more personal blog that was kind of, he was there first. He was an inspiration to me to start doing and he's still a really interesting guy. I read a, a bunch of others in rotation, but I think basically I start each morning with, with those. And then I actually usually, uh, Uh, read a couple of more political blogs. Uh, Ezra Klein at the Washington Post, uh, Greg Sargent, also at the Washington Post on more politics, the Washington Monthly. And at that point, uh, it's time to uh, to prepare the next class. So I move on from the blogosphere and, and start putting my lecture notes together.
1: All right, great. So, Paul Krugman, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: Well, thanks much.
1: And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Paul Krugman for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for the second half of the show today, we're going to be talking about economics and corporations in fantasy and science fiction, and we're joined by a special guest geek. Sarah Brand is a graduate of the Alpha Young Writers Workshop in Vanderbilt University, where she majored in economics. Her first novel, To Disturb the Universe, about a girl who can create wormholes, is currently being represented by Ami Joan Paquette at the Aaron Murphy Literary Agency. So Sarah, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks. Glad to be here.
1: All right, cool. So I think we're going to start out and talk just a little bit about some of our favorite books and stories that involve economics and corporations somehow. And actually, when I, when I think about economics and science fiction, one of the first things that comes to mind is this thing that happened to me when I was in high school, where we were assigned to read this Isaac Asimov story. And after each story, the teacher would give us sort of a 10-question test about things that were uh, in the story. And so one of the questions for this story was, who is Malthus? And, you know, we're all like, I don't remember any character named Malthus in the story. And so, like, maybe was it this character, maybe? Was it that character? I'm not sure. And it turned out there was no Malthus in the story. There was just one line in the story where some character said, Malthus, be damned. And the teacher gave us this big lecture about how when you come to a name in a story that you don't know, you should go and look it up, which I thought was profoundly unfair because, you know, fantasy and science fiction stories are always full of characters going, by the beard of Grobthar or something, <laughs> and you don't always go and look all that stuff up. But so it turns out that Thomas Malthus was an economist, and he's famous for sort of saying that you shouldn't feed poor people, because that just encourages them. And Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is sort of a caricature of Malthus. And so in this story, they had dis- the characters had discovered parallel worlds, and so the character was saying, you know, Malthus's ideas about limited resources are no longer applicable because we have an infinite number of worlds to settle now. sir, have you ever heard of Thomas Malthus?
3: Yeah, what I, what I remember is that he said agriculture grows in a linear fashion, whereas population grows exponentially. So according to him, you know, soon overpopulation would run rampant. We wouldn't have enough food for everyone. So basically what you were saying... And he just failed to take technological change into account. He was right for his time, but he just totally failed to predict the Industrial Revolution.
1: But I guess like really the earliest book that I read that has to do with corporations was this book called The Cold Cash War by Robert Aspirin. And sort of the premise of that is that governments are on the wane and corp- evil corporations are on the rise. And so the competition between corporations has gotten so intense that they've actually started you know, it's broken out into open warfare with soldiers and bombers and stuff like that. But since they're corporations, they don't like to lose money on having people get killed and stuff blown up. So they've kind of come to an agreement among each other, that they'll just play this sort of virtual laser tag type war. And then they don't have to actually have all their profit making infrastructure blown up. The the thing that's fun that there, I remember most about that book is that there's one scene where a character, one of these, oh, eventually this the system breaks down and, and the war actually becomes real with live ammo and stuff. And one of these mercenaries who's been hired by these corporations is is trying to bury him. He's been mortally wounded and he's trying to bury himself um, so that his body won't be counted because he doesn't think the other side deserves to count his body because he made a dumb mistake. And and Robert Asprin said that, you know, when you're, when you're writing a book full of scenes like that, that it changes the way you see the world and you just imagine people are going to like attack you everywhere you go (laughs) and that this isn't really a healthy uh, mental state to be in. And he actually started writing my favorite series as a kid, the humorous fantasy myth books, because he wanted a change, you know, he wanted something that would be like psychologically healthier for him after writing Cold Cash War.
2: That sort of segues nicely into one of my favorite uh, books on the subject, uh, and actually one of my favorite novels overall, uh, a book called Market Forces by Richard K. Morgan. Uh I'm sure we've talked about it on the show before, but you know it's particularly relevant to this topic uh you know it's it's set in a sort of dystopian future where where companies invest in in conflicts throughout the world which they call conflict investment, and basically it's like companies finance uh the factions or whatever that are engaged in warfare that they think are gonna win that's sort of the background of the of the world and then um you know in the actual story like we see the executives in the in these companies are also it's also quite crazy where like you know they basically uh, engage in gladiatorial car duels uh, in order to raise up the the ranks in the in the company. So like you know if you if you're a junior executive and you want to you know get a promotion you know you have to engage in this car duel with uh, with with uh, whoever your boss is.
1: So why do you think that corporations are depicted as evil so reliably in fantasy and science fiction?
2: I think because they are pretty reliably evil in the real world. Once, once you reach a certain size, I think it, like it just it, it inevitably turns evil somehow. I don't, I don't, I don't understand why that is.
3: Because you know, as the the corporate thing that they have to do is return value to their shareholders, and if you want to rein them in, you practically have to have some sort of regulation or some other kind of societal pressure.
1: I don't know. Have you guys ever seen this documentary called The Corporation? Uh, And the premise is, you know, there's this legal fiction that corporations are people and, you know, for purposes of free speech and, and stuff like that. And so this documentary asks, well, if they're people, what sort of people are they? And analyzes them using the DSM for criteria for antisocial personality disorder and finds that, yeah, basically all corporations could be categorized as psychopaths just based on their, you know, the the criteria are things like, you know, shows a reckless disregard for the feelings or safety of others, you know, avoids responsibility, makes up elaborate excuses to avoid responsibility uh, persistently and and all this stuff like that, that just basically describe corporations, uh, you know, general operations. It makes me think that, you know, a lot of science fiction stories feature futures in which human society is ruled by evil robots or evil AIs or something like that. And I wonder if we're even that far from that. Is there really much difference between a corporation and an evil robot?
2: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I I can see why they like why you would uh, place them together like that. I mean, because they are very similar in a lot of ways. I mean, in terms of like the the way a corporation has to behave when it when it's um, beholden to its shareholders, as Sarah was saying, you know, it's like it, it sort of mimics the. Uh, sort of logical processes that a, that a robot has to go through when when it has certain parameters.
1: Well, like to give a concrete example, right? Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, he talks about how corporations would realize that some car that they had made had a defect and they would do the math to see how much would it cost to recall all these cars versus how much would it cost for all these people to get injured or killed and then they would sue us and if the cost of the recall is greater than the cost of the lawsuits, then they don't recall the car, and that's a very that's that's like something you would expect an evil robot to do. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think it, there, to any degree that writers are just host- hostile to corporations because they're rich and writers aren't, <laughs> uh, and there's just some jealousy going? I, I sort of wonder about that too. Is that? I think that how you feel about the status quo to a large extent is influenced by whether to what degree it, it benefits you. There was actually one, you know I studied political science in college and there was this great cartoon up in the faculty area where it was three fish and there's like a little fish who's about to be eaten by a medium-sized fish who's about to be eaten in turn by a large fish and the little fish is thinking there's no justice in the world and the medium-sized fish is thinking there's some justice in the world and the large fish is thinking the world is just I just wonder if if writing was this extremely lucrative profession for most writers, and it was like really heavily subsidized, you know, it got the kind of tax breaks and subsidies that oil companies and things like that get, would we see a lot more fiction where CEOs were heroes and Wall Street traders were heroes and stuff like that?
3: My theory is that corporations are villains because their motives are very easily understandable. You don't have to go to a lot of trouble to, you know, invent some elaborate backstory for you know how the corporation or the corporation's flunkies were, you know their parents didn't love them or anything. They want to make money, and everybody looks at like, and they're like, oh, this corporation—they want to make money. We get that as readers; we are totally on board with understanding their motives, and we can move on to the people shooting at each other.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that I think that's well taken, and uh, you know that not only are they, do they have queer motives but also that they're powerful and you need your adversary to be powerful if the story is going to have any drama to it. Right. I mean, you don't have any stories about heroes trying to take down the evil soup kitchen or something. It's <laughs> like... There's one story I wanted to mention. That's, that's really good. John was weird. I was talking about this with John before we started and about how obscure this story is. So I don't know how many people have read it. And I'm, I'm going to, so I'm just going to spoil the whole story. It's this really short idea story, but it's called the good work by Theodore L. Thomas. And the premise is that there's a guy, and it's in a future where all the work is done by machines, so all the food is provided and everything, and you know people don't have to work. But there's this guy, and he just he just really wants to work. He just feels useless just sitting around all day, and so he questions and he digs, and he finally finds out that there actually is a special work program for people like him. And what he's told is that, you know, he lives in this this giant city, uh, full of all these machines, and he's told that the actions of these machines cause subtle vibrations that cause all the bolts in the city to loosen over time and that they need people to go around tightening all these bolts. So he joins this this tightening crew and they go around tightening all the bolts in the city and uh and he's happy. And so at the end of the story he comes home and uh it switches to what's going on in his <laughs> neighbor's apartment and that guy is also coming home to his wife or no he's about to start on his on his shift. And he says to his wife, "Well, goodbye. The loosening crew won't wait." Oh. <laughs> and so it's just this story, you know. It's just this economic story about how finding, you know, finding work for people is is often more important than what they actually do.
3: Uh. Well, the canvas and Lord Iron is a story by Daniel Abraham, um, which, which I, I think can be listened to on Podcastle as a podcast. Uh I forget where it appeared originally. And it was in
2: Bloggeria edited by John Klima?
1: That's actually interesting because how the story came this this anthology, the idea was that it was all um winning spelling bee words. We're, were gonna be the inspiration for all the stories, so that's why the canvassed is this unusual word.
3: The story is about a canvas, a money changer, basically who is approached by Lord Iron, this very um debauched sort of noble nobleman. Lord Iron comes to him three times throughout the story and gives him three increasingly difficult problems to solve, which are basically logical and economic puzzles. And the really fun part of reading the story for me was seeing how the canvas figured out these problems that Lord Iron set to him. It was just a very interesting way of showing how logic and economic thought can be used to drive drama in a story. I haven't seen that done very well in many other places that I can think of.
1: And actually, uh, you know, speaking of Paul Krugman and and actually Brad DeLong, who he mentioned uh, in the interview, I guess the two of them sort of got into an argument online uh, over this story. So, I mean, there really is a lot to chew on in this story.
2: Yeah, so uh, a story I I would mention is uh, Dead Space for the Unexpected uh, uh, by Jeff Ryman. Um, I reprinted this story in my anthology, Brave New Worlds. You know, so obviously it's a dystopian story, but, uh, you know, it also takes place like, you know, in a sort of corporate environment um it's basically a a situation where where when you go to work every sort of minute of your time is has to be accounted for and and so it's sort of like micromanagement on the on the ultimate scale
1: um there was another story actually in your brave new worlds anthology um just do it by heather lindsley which is sort of it also has sort of a a, an anti-corporate kind of slant it's sort of I I listened to it actually on Escape Pod, I think, years ago, but isn't it isn't this the one where uh advertisers are shooting people with darts that kind of inject you with serum that makes you want to buy their products or something like that? Yeah, yeah. It's funny actually, and of course, just do it is the Nike slogan. And I don't know if you know guys know where that came from, but there was a Nike executive and he was watch he was reading the newspaper and he came across a story of a death row inmate whose last words were, Alright, let's do it. And uh He's like, okay, let's do it. There's something. How about, okay, instead of let's do it, how about just do it? <laughs> and 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 so for years they kept it secret. You know that that's where that came from. <laughs> right. That's awesome. <laughs> just thinking about economics and science fiction writers is that it seems like a vastly disproportionate number of science fiction writers have very extreme views on economics, whether libertarian or Marxist. I mean, China Mieville actually has a phd thesis which has been published as a book called the marxist critique of international law
2: no i mean it seems like there definitely is i don't know how many other marxists there are but um certainly libertarians there's a there's a large number of libertarians out there i mean there's even a there's even a whole award uh given specifically to libertarian works of science fiction Uh, it's called the prometheus award and i mean not even and, and people who get nominated for it aren't necessarily even libertarians i mean you know uh, I know Robert, Robert J. Sawyer was nominated when you're in like, he's Canadian. So it's like, you know, it's any, and he's like as far from libertarian as can be, but you know, uh, well maybe not quite as far as can be, but you know, he's pretty far. There's a whole anthology devoted to libertarian science fiction called, uh, free space. Uh, and you know, I, I think it's the kind of thing that it's like, you know, you don't have to be a libertarian obviously to read and enjoy the stories, uh, I think it's interesting to us on, on, on an intellectual level, even if it's something that we don't believe in per se. Because it's not like the sort of thing where where like you read it and it's like some sort of political track that, you know, is trying to convince you of some viewpoint. It's just depicting a, a different type of society. You know, and and that's the kind of thing that a lot of us find interesting in science fiction.
1: Okay, but well, let's so uh, let's get some more specific examples. Unfortunately some of the some of the best examples I can think of are books I haven't read, so I can't uh talk about them in too much detail. But one I want to mention is called The Space Merchants by uh, Fred Pohl and Cyril Kornbluth. And this is a book where advertising agencies have taken over the world. The, the thing I think is really cool about this is that I actually met um, Fred Pohl. He, he came and taught at a writing workshop I attended. And he said that he wanted to write a book about the advertising industry. He actually, I think, tried to write one and sort of wrote it and said, ah, this sucks. And the reason it sucks is because I don't know anything about advertising. And he actually got a he actually went out and got a job at an ad agency and worked there for years. And I think ended up really liking it in the end. And channeled all that and all, all all that he learned into this novel, The Space Merchants.
3: When John was talking about market forces, it it kind of reminded me of Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which I desperately need to reread. But it's a future where the United States, at least, has fragmented into Dozens and dozens of little tiny corporate states and everything is a corporation. You know, the former United States of America is this one little country and it's a corporation and the most bureaucratic, depressing corporation you can imagine, honestly. And then the mafia is a corporation. And it's just crazy enough to be almost plausible, if that makes sense.
2: Speaking of Snow Crash, I mean, you know, we could almost cite any cyberpunk novel or story. Uh, I mean, there's almost always an evil corporation in, in those.
3: And that really goes with the cyberpunk ethos where, you know, you kind of have the lone hacker against the world. Like the I think it would be very hard to fit a good corporation in with that kind of worldview or the kind of outlook that most cyberpunk novels and stories seem to have.
1: Well that's actually I think that brings up an interesting point is are there any good corporations in fantasy and science fiction? Well and the only one I've really come up with is is actually the foundation that Paul Krugman Krug was talking about. I don't know if that's techni- I don't know if they're incorporated or not, but I mean it is, you know, it's a private entity set up to for a noble sort of utopian kind of purpose. And it's, it's not like there's just one hero of the novel. It is this group. This private group that's the hero of the of the of the series. I mean, in the interview with Paul Krugman, we were asking him about this idea that there's no money in the future in Star Trek. Uh, so let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you don't buy that, Sarah, right?
3: I was somewhat skeptical because I think people will always want to trade stuff, and whenever people will want to trade, it makes sense for there to be something that they can trade with so that you know you're not just trading phasers for holodecks you you can trade phasers for money and then go buy a holodeck because that's usually easier
1: uh i mean i think th- i think the point in star trek is that it's a post scarcity economy so you don't really need to trade phasers for holodecks because they can just replicate i don't know what the limits of the replicator are but they can replicate just about anything, I think.
3: Does everyone have replicators?
1: Uh, I don't know. But, I mean, I think that... I mean, just for the sake of argument, let's say they do. I mean, I mean, let's just for the sake of argument say it's a true... We're talking about a true post-scarcity society where essentially any physical thing, you can have it. You know, if you want your own planet made out of solid gold, <laughs> we've, got, we, we've got nanomachines that can make that for you. In that case, does a volunteer like what seems to be the star trek sort of just volunteer society makes sense you know if you want to work on something with some other people if you want to you know go nuts and if you don't you can just go to your planet man out of gold and replicate all the food and whatever you need and that's everybody's happy do we need dollar bills then
2: you know i'm not an economist obviously but i mean and and i can't i can't actually claim to fully understand the the economics of star trek but yeah, I mean, it, it seems like that it's at least feasible that, that that's the sort of society that could develop. I'm, I'm highly skeptical that it ever could just because of human nature, but, um, cause there'd be someone who would figure out some way to ruin it for everyone. But, um, <laughs> uh, even, even in Star Trek though, like, I mean, you're saying let's make some assumptions that yes, everyone has replicators and everything. And, and, but, uh, in Star Trek, actually, that it's not actually the case. That everyone has access to them. And, and there is, I guess, some stuff that can't be replicated. Uh, cause a, a, as we sort of progress in, through the series, like, and then you get into Deep Space Nine and whatnot, you know, there, you get more, you get to learn more about the Ferengi race, which is very trade based. Uh, their society is very trade based. So obviously there's still plenty of stuff out there in the Star Trek universe that has to be traded for and acquired that way rather than just replicated
3: like John said, human nature, someone would probably find a way to, you know, control the replicators and, you know, only give replicators to their friends and repress the rest of society with their replicator power to replicate guns and tanks and things.
1: Well, I think the int- the um, the issue of human nature is an interesting one. I mean, I think, as I mentioned in the interview, I, you know, there's always the possibility that we might be genetically engineered or biomechanically enhanced or something to just have a better nature, uh you know, to just not feel, you know, em- emotions like jealousy and greed as intensely. Um but even leaving that aside, I think that human nature is a lot more malleable than people give it credit for. I mean, if you were to go back in time to the Inquisition and say, "Hey guys, you know what would be great? A society where everyone can just be whatever religion they want and no one really cares." I think any reasonable person living in that time would say, "No, that's just not human nature. It's just human nature to want to kill people who's, who have different a different religion than you do. It's always been like that. It's always going to be like that." And yet, you know, in a relatively short amount of time, you know, we're in a society where no one would, you know, very very few people would really con- seriously consider killing their neighbor for being of a, a different religion. And so, and I, th- I, 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 I personally think that s- uh, some sort of massive Tectonic shift in how we view personal wealth is possible. I mean, I I, I really suspect that in 500 years, people will look back on CEOs who accepted payments 400 times that of the average worker, this the way that we look at slave owners or something, and just say like, what were you thinking? Like, who possibly thought that this was morally acceptable? You know, and that people will just say, you know, once you have, once you have a million dollars to spend on yourself. It's just expected of you that everything, everything you make on top of that is going to go into some worthy cause that you pick or something like that. And people would just be humiliated, would just be embarrassed to have a house with its, with their own private beach and car elevator and stupid shit like that. Well, just speaking of evil corporations, I mean, there are two stories that have come out uh, in recent years that I, or that I just read recently anyway, that are are two of the best, uh, I think, evil corporation short stories that I've read. Uh, the Art of Alchemy by Ted Kismatka and The Green Leopard Plague by Walter John Williams. And they kind of have a similar premise in that each of them deals with evil corporations that have developed some beneficial new technology and try to keep it secret or try to keep it from the wider population uh, because it would affect their profit margin. Uh, and so in in The Art of Alchemy, it's carbon nanotubes. And in the Green Leopard Plague, it's uh, a sort of bioengineered algae kind of thing that would allow people to um, use photosynthesis so that they wouldn't have to eat food anymore. They could just metabolize energy from sunlight.
2: Yeah, re- I really love that idea that, you know, that something something like that would, uh, you know, if you you release it on a the population, then it would, uh, you know, suddenly make world hunger not, no longer an issue and how... How actually just eliminating hunger as as a way to oppress people, like would completely revolutionize the world.
1: so Sarah have you read either of these stories?
3: No, I haven't. I'm wondering how Walter John Williams uh dealt with people not having as much surface area per mass or per volume as plants do.
1: Well, I think in this story, don't they actually grow like leaves on them?
3: People growing leaves sounds really awesome. <laughs>
2: There there are some objections to the science uh raised in this story initially, because it's not just it's not just like, oh, that, now suddenly we have photosynthesis. It's like he does have some science in there that sort of makes it sound more feasible than than it might initially uh to someone who's sort of scientifically minded. I don't remember all the details off the top of my head, but he did have some um some explanation uh that makes it that made it seem more feasible.
1: I, I sort of wondered reading these stories is it really possible for anyone to keep something like that from the public i mean even even if the corporation as a whole sees it in their bottom sees it in their bottom line interest to to stifle something if it's something that that powerful you know curing world hunger are the people you know who work for the corporation just not going to rebel in a sense
2: it would be unlikely that someone wouldn't attempt that but uh the question then would become how how successful would you be able to be when you have companies that are you know sort of super secretive and and they know they they know what they know what they have to lose and and maybe would be willing to go to un- what we would have thought would be unthinkable extremes to you know prevent their company from from being destroyed by whatever new revolutionary technology comes out and i mean i think i think that's that sort of ties back into like why we see the evil corporation and in involved in these types of stories so much because it's so easy to tie that into like a sort of a thriller plot. And, you know, both of these stories sort of have this thriller uh, aspect to them
1: um, too. So, well, no, and, and and the, the formula of a thriller, you know, calls for the characters to repeatedly run away (laughs) from the bad guy and yet be found over and over again. And it's much more plausible that a government or a corporation has the resources to find you over and over again than, like, Jason or something. Or I guess maybe he uses magic, evil magic or something. <laughs> but if it's just like, you know, if it's like the Terminator, there comes to be a certain point where you're like, okay, come on, they've gotten away from him. He's not going to find him now if they're just in some random hotel in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, you can still sort of believe some some powerful organization, like a like a corporation. They just have eyes everywhere. There was this a fairy tale recently uh by Ursula K. Le Guin that came out called 99 weeks which is which was described on io9 as sort of a uh, a fairy tale for the occupy wall street movement and the the premise is sort of that there is a guy and he can't find work and he's a woodcutter i think and he's walking through the woods and he meets this fairy and the fairy offers to give him a piece of silver every week, as long as he uh, keeps goes going around asking, asking after work, even though it's pretty much futile. It sort of this sort of puts him in a trap where he can't uh, accept jobs that pay less than this silver a week. And then after a while, the fairy just stops giving him this silver, and it's just a mess. He's can't pay his rent to the ogre, and I don't know, Sarah, as an economist, uh, what did you think of this uh, this little fairy tale?
3: Well, putting it in the fairy tale context, I think putting basically taking unemployment insurance in this sort of fairy tale universe illustrates really well how arbitrary and some of these some of these rules in the real world actually are because even though you know, to the people who design the system, it has some logic behind it. To the people who actually have to go and work with that, um, it just ends up having all these unintended consequences, which is a lot like a lot of fairy tales. And so I thought that was a really interesting way to spin it.
1: Yeah, I I thought it was interesting. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's different to read a fairy tale than to read just an article and... It's just, I don't know, it's just just cool to me that this form, as ancient as the fairy tale, can still be used to rhetorical effect uh, for modern day problems. All right, cool. So uh, why don't we start wrapping this up? Uh, You want to tell us a little bit about your novel?
3: To Disturb the Universe is, is a young adult science fiction novel about a girl who can make wormholes and the evil corporation that wants to control her and the many, many problems that this causes in her life. It is currently on submission, and I've got my fingers crossed.
1: So if there are any editors listening who uh, want to learn more about you, uh, how should they do that?
3: My website is sarahbrand.com, Sarah with an H, and uh, uh, my Twitter handle is Sarah B brand.
1: All right, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Sarah, thanks for joining us.
3: No problem. It was my pleasure.
1: And thanks so much to Paul Krugman for being our guest today. So we've had a couple listeners request sort of a reading list for the show with the names of the various books and stories that we mentioned. So I started putting together something like that. And you can see what I've got so far by going to our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the reading list link on the menu bar. And of course, it's hard to list every single story that we mentioned, but I tried to include some of the more prominent examples. And each item on that list links to Amazon.com. And if you order any of those books via those links, we'll get a small amount of money that we can use to keep the show going, which would be great. And of course, if you don't want to buy any books, but you just want to give us money, you can always do that too, just by clicking on the PayPal link on the menu bar. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarrCurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one.